Zachariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe me in my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized they had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. You will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your, ch- your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Right now we're in the final week of the season of Advent, and we're wrapping up what might be one of my favorite times in the church year. Advent is all about looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And in our first week of Advent, we talked about how the promise of the second coming of Jesus means that the peace and justice will reign over the whole world. Everything in this world that we know in our bones isn't meant to be will come undone. Instead, the perfect reign of God will come to us all. So Advent is the time when we take stock of the world we live in, and we really see the kinds of things that make living here tough. We see violence and evil. We see our work looking like it's going to waste. And we can't help but yearn for the time when God makes everything right. We want to see the time when people give up their rebellion against him and against the world he created. And instead, they beat their swords used for violence into farming implements because their swords have become useless. It's not a coincidence that all of this Advent stuff is taking place during the winter for most of the Christian world. Winter is not an easy time. The cold is really harsh and uncomfortable. The sun isn't out much, which really messes up our mood. And all the vegetation around us is dying, and we really can't endure it. During this time, we can't help but hope for when new life comes, when the sun really shines the way it's supposed to, and the flowers and the grass come back. In the same way, we're looking forward to the time when Jesus comes back and all those who are faithful to him rise again to a new imperishable world. We've also talked about how, in Advent, we spend time looking back at the first time that God returned to his people by being born as Jesus Christ, knowing that, we were, that that was the guarantee that Jesus would come again. Israel had been blessed by God and given the mission to carry God's presence to the whole world so that the world would be saved when God became king over the world again. 
But they sinned so much and so often that it looked like God's relationship with Israel and the mission they had to save the world had been forgotten. Israel didn't have a king to lead them, and it was obvious that God was not in his temple. Maybe if God came back to his temple, then the relationship between God and Israel would still be on, and the promise that the world be saved through them would come true. But it had been centuries, and still God was nowhere to be found. As we saw last week, one day Zechariah, an Israelite, walked into that barren, lonely, empty temple where God hadn't been for centuries and was greeted with news that God really was coming back. Last week, we tried to imagine the kind of joy that they experienced secondhand at the realization that God had returned his people and was saving the world so that we can imagine what it will be like to experience it firsthand when we realize that Jesus has come back and set all things new. Because that secondhand joy we experienced at Jesus' first coming is the assurance of our joy when Jesus returns. Finally, this week, we're going to talk about what we do in the meantime as we wait for Jesus to return. And in doing that, we're going to look at the responses of a few normal, righteous Israelites and learn from how they reacted. The great thing is that we don't really see any perfect people in this passage. But what we do see is what it looks like to, be, to faithfully do God's work as we wait for him to come again. Zechariah walks into the temple, and that temple was the place where God was said to live in the Old Testament. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was thought of as the throne where God sat. But God wasn't, in the th- wasn't on the Ark of the Covenant anymore, and he wasn't in the temple. And at this point, the, bar- the temple was barren and sterile, and everyone knew that God wasn't there. And the way they knew it was that it was objectively obvious when God really was in the temple building. In passages like 1 Kings 8 and Exodus 40, the moment that the presence of God entered the temple, a thick cloud came in so that nobody could see anything. In Exodus 40, it says that Israel knew whether it was time to break camp and journey in the wilderness based on whether they saw the cloud sitting on the Ark of the Covenant. But the cloud hadn't come back for a long time. It it looked like Israel had messed up so bad that God had abandoned them permanently. And if he had abandoned them, then that meant he probably had abandoned the whole world. Israel would have desired to see that cloud come back to the temple so much. It was prophesied for many years that one day God would suddenly come back, and everyone probably would have expected to know what that happens when they see that cloud fill the temple. Zechariah walked in and realized that, unlike every other time he trudged on in there, he wasn't alone. An angel was present, and he announced that God was coming back to his people. But Zechariah just couldn't believe it. And you can't really blame him too much. The temple had been empty for so long. Was this a prank? Was this some sort of demon? Who knows? So he asks for a sign or some kind of miraculous thing that has to prove that God really is going to do what the angel says he's going to do. And it's funny and ironic because he really does get what he asked for. He wants a miracle, and the angel gives him a miracle. Of course, the sign was also his punishment. He'd be struck mute for months. So he has to do this whole embarrassing thing of walking and trying to describe an angel appearing in a miracle and what's going to happen, all without using words. It would have had to have been a hilarious sight. I really do think that we're supposed to empathize with the joy that everyone was feeling in this passage that God was coming back, and almost to laugh at what ends up happening to Zechariah. Because if you keep on reading, the whole being struck mute thing ends up being small potatoes for him, because he recognizes the bigger picture. God is coming back. The world is saved. What better news could there be? But this was foreshadowing. God was coming back to his people, but it was going to be in a new and better way, not just in the form of a cloud sitting in the most holy place. 
The next passage describes how God is going to come back to his people in this new and better way. So the first words that the angel says to Mary is, Greetings, O favorite one. The Lord is with you. And of course, they're a little bit more literal than you might think. The Lord would literally be with her, living in her womb very soon. Just like Zechariah, Mary has no idea what the angel is talking about. She can't have a kid. She's a virgin. And what's with this O favored one stuff? But she asks a question, gets a confusing explanation, and then basically decides, if God really is coming back to his people, I'll do whatever part he wants me to do. Looking back with hindsight, we can see what the implication is. God was coming back to his people, like he said to Zechariah, but it was going to be as a person. God himself was taking on flesh. Okay, maybe we don't 100% understand that either. But in the early church, one of the most important names they gave to Mary was called Theotokos, which means God-bearer. It was actually a kind of controversial name to give to a person, if you might imagine. And the controversy had a lot less to do with Mary than it had to do with Jesus. It kind of sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? To say that a mere human being like Mary actually bore God himself. Can the God who made the whole world be contained within the womb of a mortal like Mary? Some people, even really good Christians, really had a problem with the whole idea. And they tried to make sure that no one calls Mary the God-bearer. But ultimately, the church agreed that Mary should be called the God-bearer. Because Jesus really was fully God, and Mary carried Jesus in her womb, so she must have carried God himself. And this said something really important about God. It said that God was not ashamed to enter the womb of a human and be born. And being born isn't a really dignified process. But if God was willing to go through all that, that meant that every step of life from the womb to the tomb has incredible dignity. Because God was a baby. God was an adolescent. God was a young adult. God was a dying man, and God was a dead man. Those things sound blasphemous, like it's not worthy of God to be called a baby. But that's how much God stood by his creation. That, as Janet pointed out earlier today, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Because the form of a human servant is a holy and good thing and proper of God himself. So the form of a human servant is a holy, sacred, and good thing. It is the very image of God. And now even more literally because God became human. And it's not blasphemous to say that God was a dead man, because Jesus was God and Jesus died. So God took death into himself that day. God bore the full curse of the death of his creation so that the blessing of his presence would flow out to all the world. In all those things, God was not ashamed to live as a human. It's incredible, but we're called to do a thing very similar to Mary. God is with us, and he lives within us in a way that is no less real than the way that God lived within Mary. It's wondrous and beautiful and amazing, but our very bodies, God, Paul says, are temples of the Holy Spirit. And if the temple is where God lives, then that means that God lives within us. And I don't mean that in a figurative sense. It's not a metaphor. It's what actually happened. We are all theotokoi, God-bearers, and we carry God wherever we go. And that's a big deal. From the very beginning, when God withdrew his presence from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the world has been in desperate need of the presence of God. God was the one who made the world, and without him, the world would slowly be unmade. Humans tried to get God's presence back in all sorts of ways, whether through building really big towers in Babel, or through making huge sacrifices, or through replacing God with our own intelligence. All this, as you can see, has failed. The world was made for God to be with us, 
and can never function properly without him. If God is present with us in our very bodies, just like in Mary's, that means that we carry within us the antidote to the world's seemingly incurable disease. Christians shouldn't be afraid to be anywhere because God is with them. This was the role of God's people from the very beginning. God was going to be with the Israelites in the Ark of the Covenant and bless the whole world through them. Now the New Testament says that the covenant God had with the Israelites has been extended to all of us, Gentiles included. That means that we are tasked with doing the same kinds of things, tripping and fumbling through life, only to see that people are converted, lives saved, and the world blessed. And all of that explicitly because God is with us. Where we go, God goes with us. And where God is, the world is blessed. A faithful Christian is the most dangerous thing to an enemy, not because of their own cunning or skill, but simply because God is with them. It's not through your skills and wisdom that God is completing his plans, but simply through your presence and the fact that God is with you. That started when, when, when Jesus said, Surely I am with you always, and continued through Pentecost when the Spirit of God rested on the whole church, and it's still true today. The picture on your bulletin has a really interesting title. It's a picture of Mary with Jesus in her womb, and the title is The Ark of the Covenant. I hope you can see why that's such an appropriate name. The Ark was where God was most present in the whole world. And somehow, the eternal God who made the entire universe and hung the stars in the sky did not consider it shameful to enter into the womb of a human being as, baby, as a tiny baby not yet born. You can tell just barely the figure of a baby in, her, in Mary's womb in the picture. And the huge God who made the whole universe as his home was not afraid to make himself that small. In fact, he considered the most proper home for himself, even better than the original Ark of the Covenant, covered as it was with angels and solid gold. This title from the mural is actually really consistent with one of the coolest parts about this text. When the angel says that the Spirit of God will overshadow Mary, that's the same word that's used in the Old Testament for when the art cloud entered into the most holy place and overshadowed the original Ark of the Covenant. Mary's own body became the new Ark of the Covenant. It's a wondrous, glorious thing. But it's only foreshadowing for our own everyday reality if we are in Christ. Because Christ is in us. God has overshadowed us too. And that's not a sappy metaphor. It's true. When you meet a Christian on the street, there's an incredible sense that you're meeting Christ as well. When a Christian goes to the gas station, there's an incredible sense that Christ has gone to the gas station. Wherever two or more Christians are gathered together, God is there with them. And that's the presence of God that the world so desperately needs. And we have it. During Advent, we pray that God will come again once more to save the world. And we need that so much. It's our only hope. We look at passages that describe things like people beating their swords into plowshares and God breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And we hear the promise that one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes when he finally establishes a new heaven and a new earth. We need that so much, because now is a tough time in the year when we can get hopeless. But another thing that we learned during Advent is that there's work to be done now. We bear witness to the way that God has already set up a different kind of kingdom in our midst. Jesus is king right now, today over a kingdom of God's own people that was made to carry God's presence in the whole world and redeem as much of it as he can. And it has nothing to do with our own skill or wisdom, but everything to do with God within us, which is what the world desperately needs, whether they know it or not. 
we learn the lesson that Zachariah learned, that there's no way for us to fully know or control what's happening. But sometimes we just get out of the way and see the way that God's presence changes everything. In the end, all we can do is be like Mary and say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said, because God is with us. One thing you might be able to notice is that these two stories about Mary and Zechariah are really similar. In both cases, the same angel comes and visits Mary and Zechariah unexpectedly. In both cases, the angel says something that, means, that sounds completely absurd, that a baby will be born to someone who by no means should be able to give birth. Finally, both of them asked a completely understandable question. Zechariah asks, how shall I know this? Because I am well along in years, and my wife is an old woman. While Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? But then they get completely different answers. Zechariah is unable to speak for months, and Mary is given an explanation. What's the difference? The difference is that Zechariah is asking for a sign or a guarantee that what the angel says is true. Zechariah wants some big miracle to happen, then he'll believe. Ironically, he gets what he asked for. The big miraculous sign that guaranteed that the angel was right happened, and he was struck with muteness. By contrast, Mary simply asks, how will this be? She's asking for an explanation, not a guarantee. Just like Zechariah, she gets what she asked for, but she isn't punished along with it. And I think one of the cool things that Luke is doing here is foreshadowing for what is coming next in his gospel. The Jews will constantly be asking for signs and wonders and miracles, guaranteeing that God will do what he says, and he's going to do it, and he's going to do it through Christ. In the end, no amount of miracles would ever be good enough for them, and very few of them end up believing. Jesus says, A wicked and and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given them but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. In other words, just like Zechariah got a different kind of sign than he was expecting, the rest of the Jews got a different kind of sign, which was Jesus' resurrection. But even if those guarantees and signs and miracles wouldn't convince us, because we know they didn't convince the Jews of Jesus' day, we still want them, don't we? We want to be 100% sure of what's coming in the future. And I don't know about you, but I kind of hate not being able to see the future. It would have come in handy over the past couple of years. But that's the way it is. We work and toil for things we're not sure will work out. We plant seeds we may not harvest from. We go to school for things we're not sure we'll, we'll use. But it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? To be faithful in things even if we don't have a guarantee of success. Like imagine you're Mary and you hear the angel's explanation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you think that Mary understood a word of what the angel said? Do you think that she thought, oh well, sure, that clears it up. The Holy Spirit will come upon me and the power of the Most High will overshadow me. That makes total sense. No, but she still said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. It would be wonderful if we had that kind of faith. Many people were in the same position as she was. Remember, there were faithful Jews for hundreds of years who were never able to see the Messiah's birth. And they worked all their lives in service of God, being mocked by these foreign empires, and they wouldn't be vindicated until Jesus comes again. And I imagine we're probably in the same position ourselves. But we can still be faithful, not even knowing the beginning of what's coming. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking forward to the future of our congregation and really trying to figure out who we are and what our vision is for who our, our community congregation is going to be, 
what our role in the future of the community will be with us. That's going to include Paul Stutzman's visit in March, but I'm hoping that it'll be a continuous process of discernment and work all throughout the year of 2023, God willing. Maybe we can call it our New Year's resolution. And I'm thinking that this lesson will be very important during the next year. We're going to do a lot of planning and effort here, but at no point in this process do I anticipate feeling 100% convinced that we're going in the right direction. And I don't think you will either. As much as we might want it, we're not going to get a sign from heaven that confirms our path, that says we're going to be a church of hundreds and hundreds of people in tens of years or something like that. But whatever the case, we're going to keep plugging away and faithfully doing whatever it is that we think that God wants us to do, knowing that we may not all see the fruits of his labor. Because we know that in the end, God wins. None of our efforts will be in vain. We bear the presence of God within our very, very bodies, which is the only hope for the world. And it's what the world desperately needs. And it's also the one sign and one guarantee that God has given us that we will succeed in furthering God's kingdom, whatever that looks like. We're going to stumble and fall and get back up and stumble and fall again. And it just might be that the most important thing we end up doing will be an accident. We might pray for a guarantee and like Zachariah, only get the sign that we need to get out of the way, be quiet, and let the awesome stuff that God does happen. But God is going to succeed with us because he's here with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're going through a period where we don't know what's coming next. We know that you will come again and set the world right and that you're present within our very bodies. We trust that you will take the meager offering of our best efforts and multiply and transform them into something that we can never accomplish on our own. We are the Lord's servants. Let it be to us as you have said. Amen.